Good morning, Highland Hills. It's great to be with you again to open up the Word of God. And if you would, take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2. And as we turn to this portion of Scripture today, I want you to ask yourself this question. What open doors has God provided for you in your life? Because we all have them. What open doors has the Lord provided for you? Colossians chapter 4, beginning in verse 2, the Apostle Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, wrote these words. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray as we go to the Holy Scriptures this morning. Father God, we do thank you for this opportunity to gather together and to think about how you were moving in the life of Paul and in the life of these believers at Colossae and how for them you provided open doors. And may we discern the open doors that are in our lives as well to make your son Jesus known to this world. May we be brave enough to walk through those open doors. May we love people so much and be so concerned for those, their souls that, that we point them to the only one that can save them, and that is Jesus Christ. And Christ, I pray that in that you are exalted, not because we have anything to offer, but because of your grace and power, you give us these opportunities to lift you up. And may we do so, our Savior. And it is only in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You know, we've been in the Lord's book of Colossians now for a few months. We actually started in the book of Colossians in November of 2020. We have intentionally devoted ourselves to this epistle to search for God's treasures that are scattered throughout this book, patiently keeping it all in context, building and longing to see why God wrote this church, this letter, and why it matters to us today. And what have we seen as we have gone through this book, chapter by chapter? In this book, right up to here, the Holy Spirit guided Paul up to this point to have kind of an inward focus, an inward reflection of this fellowship, this church. In Colossians chapters 1 through 3, that's what we've seen. What I mean is that Paul has dealt with issues mainly pertaining to the Christians in this fellowship, what's going on in their midst, what's happening in their families. He has encouraged them to maintain true theological doctrine about what God has revealed concerning himself, to stand together knitted in love, to stand against false teachers, to always keep Jesus Christ as the center and the core of their fellowship, 
to let the lordship of Christ manifest in every aspect of their lives, especially in the family. That has been the focus of this letter. But here we see something different. A transition occurs, a change in direction where through most of this letter there's been this inward focus of this church. Now Paul looks outward. Paul goes from an introspection of this fellowship toward an outward focus on evangelism, toward an outward focus on the lost. Not to those who've come and accepted Christ in this fellowship, but to look out to those who still need Jesus, those who still need to encounter a relationship with God. That is where Paul takes us next. But before he focuses their gaze on the lost, intentionally to take the message of Jesus to their city, to their area, and beyond, he gives them this application, and I think it is our application as well. The first application we see in our text today is this, pray with a watchful heart. Look with me again in chapter 4, verse 2. Continue steadfastly in prayer being watchful in it with thanksgiving. I grew up in Corbin, Kentucky, population 7,000. And I cannot tell you the excitement we had when we found out that we were getting a super Walmart. And that should give you a testimony of how exciting it can be to live in a small town. Now, I love where I grew up. I I love my hometown, phenomenal people. I love my school. I had a great experience. But I will admit, since I've moved up to northern Kentucky, that there are some things up here that you can do that you just don't have access to. It is fun living in the greater Cincinnati area, especially when you become a parent, because there's just so many things to do beyond going to the Super Walmart. Pre-pandemic, and hopefully we get back on track with this as the years go on, as hopefully the weeks and months go on, what can you do around here? You can go to a Reds game. There are more restaurants than you know what to do with. You can go to great museums. You can go to the aquarium. You can go to the Cincinnati Zoo. There are a lot of things to do around here. And growing up in a small town, I don't take that for granted. But That's just within our grasp. But You know, when I I go to the zoo, I always think it would be fascinating to work at the zoo. It would be fascinating to tell people, for instance, when they said, what do you do for a living? If you said, well, I'm in charge of lions. Or if you were at the aquarium and you were like, well, I'm in charge of sharks. Then you could tell people, like, that's what I do for a living. That's my job. Wouldn't that sound cool? Now, I'm going to tell you right now, I don't want to get anywhere near a lion or a shark. But the job title sounds pretty cool. Well, one man in a safari-like park in Israel, he had one of those cool jobs. You see, his job was to take care of the rhinos. But one day, in January of 2015, this man fell asleep at his job. Literally fell asleep taking care of rhinos. And what happened was a real-life Madagascar movie. I want to show you this picture. Those are rhinos roaming the zoo. I think we have one more picture of them. Let's see. And you can see the headline right there, guard falls asleep. How would you like to be that guard? 
So he falls asleep, and the rhinos make a break for it. They're not supposed to be in that part of the zoo, and they're out roaming around. The news station covering this story reported that the guard soon after was well seeking another job. You know what's fascinating about Colossians 4.2? It calls for alertness. The alertness of a guard who does not fall asleep. Jesus spoke of this type of alertness in his ministry. In Luke 12, 37, it was the Messiah himself who said this. Jesus said, blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table and he will come and serve them. Jesus says, when you think about what it is to be his disciple." When you think about what it is to follow the Christ, you must keep in mind that there is a spiritual alertness that must define you. The Apostle Peter also spoke of this. The Apostle Peter said this in 1 Peter 5, 8. Peter says, be alert and sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So how do we do this? If we commit ourselves to following Jesus, how do we have an alertness to our lives that honors the Son of God? For you see, it is not a physical slumber that this text is warning us about, that this text is saying to watch out for. Here in Colossians, the temptation toward a spiritual slumber is the temptation to go through life without being Only a thankful Christian is an alert Christian. What does it say in verse 2? Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it. How? With thanksgiving. You see, the moment we let go of being grateful and thankful toward God, that is the moment we enter into a spiritual slumber. A letting down of our guard. And that is when the enemy, that is when Satan, that is when the devil strikes. So when complaining about your job takes away from the gratitude that you have a job to go to. When someone hurts your feelings and you throw a pity party and get absorbed in that. Instead of thinking of all the people who are good to you, who love you and are there for you. When jealousy overtakes you and you want what other people have. Instead of being thankful to God for the things that you do have, then you are not being watchful. You are refusing to be considerate and watchful of your thoughts. You are refusing to offer to God what he deserves, gratitude. You see, thoughts that honor Jesus are thoughts of appreciation, where you're watchful with thanksgiving. It is not to say that life sometimes does not get difficult. It is not to say that sometimes we do not need to vent. We do. We need people to be there for us that we can pour our hearts out to. But it is to say that if we're in a pattern where the dominant thoughts of our mind are anger and negativity and critical attitudes of others, and we have forfeited thanksgiving toward God, then we need to be careful, for we may have entered into a spiritual slumber 
Here's a good tactic. When you pray at some point in the day, before you pray, do this. Just write out three things you're thankful for. Before you ask God for anything, before you lay down a petition, just think of three things you're thankful for. A roof over your head. A meal. A friend who genuinely cares for you. And just thank God for those things. When you encounter God, exalt who he is and begin with gratitude for what he's done for you. You see, when you do that, you're preparing your heart to be watchful. A watchful heart is a thankful heart. It's not a heart that says that there's no difficulties in this world. It's not a heart that just tries to pretend that everything's great. But what it is, is a heart that says, regardless of my circumstance, Jesus loves me. Regardless of what I go through, the Son of God is with me. And circumstance can hit my life. But there is one greater than circumstance, and it is the Prince of Peace. A thankful heart is ready to honor God. And I believe a thankful heart is also ready to make this application from our text today. And it is this. The next application we see is, go through the opened doors that God provides for you. What do we see in verse 3? In verse 3, Paul wrote, At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the Word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Do you ever see stories in the news and you just think, that can't be real. Like a, a headline comes up and you're reading it, and it just seems far-fetched. That's how I felt when I read a story of a man named Omar Gonzalez. Omar was a 42-year-old man from Texas, and he did something not so smart. And I went and checked different sources to make sure this was going on. It actually was true when it was happening. It was on, it was on the major news networks as it played out. You see, he was in Washington, D.C., and he walked to the White House... And then he climbed the fence of the White House and jumped over it. What do you think happened to him at that point? Was he immediately apprehended? Was he tackled on the spot? No. Did some high-tech alarm go off alerting that someone was right in front of the White House and he was immediately detained? No. You see, what he did is he ran up to the White House and went through the front door. He walked right in the front door of the White House. It wasn't even locked. Now, why did this happen? Well, I haven't confirmed this, but I've heard the Secret Service feels that they're so good that they deliberately leave the White House door open, thinking no one could ever get to it because of their sophistication. And based on this story, they should rethink that plan. Omar ran up to the White House, opened the door, walked right in. Why? Because the door was open. Now, Omar had some cognitive health issues, and nobody was hurt in this story, thank goodness. But seriously, think about that. Walking right up to the White House, to the executive of our nation, and walking right in. Now, not in an illegal way, but in a really good way, Paul wants you to know there are open doors in your life. And he wants you to walk through them. 
And they're probably not going to be as difficult as walking up to the White House and going through that door. At least not as difficult as it is now, for I hope they've locked it by now. But nonetheless, you have open doors in your life that God has ordained for you, that God has provided specifically for you, and he wants you to walk through them. Verse 3 again. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul says there are opportunities, God moments that have been given to you to share the good news of Jesus Christ to this world, to let this world know there's nothing they can do to save themselves, but God has done everything to rescue them in Christ, sent his son to die on a cross to forgive them of their sins, where they can enter into a relationship with him for eternity. But to fulfill this mission, we must discern the opened doors that have been given to us. The early church did this. In Acts 14.27, it says this. In Acts 14.27, speaking of the initial church, it says, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Looking for those open doors. Reflecting back and seeing where God opened a door and being thankful for that opportunity. And Paul wanted the church at Colossae to pray that he himself, would have opened doors to share the message of Jesus throughout his area. Now, I want you to think about this. Paul, in his time period, was asking the church at Colossae, pray for me, pray that I can proclaim Jesus, pray that I can do it effectively. But let's look at verse 3 again. Look with me. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. Paul's in custody as he writes this letter. Think of the context of that. Paul is in prison, and he said, you know what we should do? We should just stop and be intentional to be thankful. God deserves that. He doesn't say that from a palace. He doesn't say that from a place of comfort. He says that from prison. Colossians is one of the prison epistles. Paul is likely arrested in Rome for preaching and proclaiming Jesus as he writes this letter. Where would your heart be if you were sitting in prison and, and you could write a letter to someone? If I was writing a letter to someone from prison, I, I, I would be honest. I, I think I would be writing, you all need to pray that I get out of prison. Like whatever you're praying for, put that on the back burner and you pray for me right now that I get out of prison. That's not what Paul does. Paul's heart is not in a place where he is afraid, concerned, stressed, or upset. Where He says, you all need to pray for me, not for his release, but, but that I can lead someone to Jesus. Maybe, maybe there's someone in this prison and they've never heard of Christ and I'm going to get to share with them, a fellow prisoner. Maybe there's a guard and I'm going to get to talk to him and share Christ with him. You see, Paul is thankful in prison. Paul is grateful in his incarceration. And his concern is not on his comfort, 
or the alleviation of his pain, his concern is that he gets a chance to share Jesus with someone. Even if the circumstance is difficult, Paul's aim is to glorify Christ. So what about us? Where has God given us open doors today? Because I would dare say, for all of us, for those who are here today, for those who are online, your open doors are probably a little bit more convenient than being in prison right now. Students, who are those peers on your sports team and band and a club and a class that are lost and they don't know Jesus and God has given you an open door to share Christ with them? Adults, who do you know, that co-worker that you've known for months or years and you know they don't know Jesus, when are you going to witness to them? Invite them to church. Invite them to tune in online to hear the gospel proclamation. Will you walk through the open door that you've been given? What about that family member? How difficult it is to share the gospel with a family member. We'd almost rather do it to a total stranger. But what about that family member that you love and you know, and you know they don't know Jesus? What an open door you have. The connection of family. Will you walk through the open door and share Jesus with them, even if it's awkward? Even if it risks a relationship Will you share Christ? Or will you walk away from that open door? Or maybe even slam it closed? Notice the two aspects of Paul's prayer. He wants opportunities to share Jesus, but he also wants to do so in a clear way. Look with me in verse 4. That I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Now listen. You do not, not, not have to be a grand theologian to share the good news of Jesus Christ. You don't. You don't have to be someone who just commits scholarly uh, studies to it for months and years. That's, that's not. You need to know Jesus and you need to understand that you're a sinner and that he's a great savior and you need to share that testimony of your relationship with Christ. But we should always be trying to, to say it more clearly. We should be working to proclaim it in a clear way. I remember in college, I was in a ministry, Campus Crusade for Christ, and there was a staff member who was my Bible study leader, and, and he was trying to train me to, to share my faith. And, and one day we sat down and he said, I want you to pretend that the only thing you can do is point to Bible verses. And you don't get to talk. You just get to point to the Bible verse. And he handed me a Bible, and he said, now lead me to Christ. And I went to John 3, 16. And that was it. I just kind of froze. And gently he was showing me, Aaron, you can be more prepared to lead people to Jesus than you are. That was a wake-up call for me. You see, I realized I was not ready clearly to lead someone to Christ from the Bible itself, and I needed to work on that. Now, what about you? If I handed you a Bible 
and the only thing you could use was God's word, could you lead someone to Christ? Now, don't let that discourage you if you're like, I don't know if I could. I've been there. I, I, I was put on the spot. But maybe you should get alone with God through the Romans road or, or some other method and be like, God, help me to commit to memory. God, help me to, to study these scriptures. Help me to see how your word leads people to Christ and help me to be prepared to show them with the Bible how they can be saved. We need to be trained and prepared to walk through these open doors where we feel confident that if someone was seeking the salvation of Christ, that we could show them from the Bible how to do that, how to call upon Christ to be saved. Paul, Paul says he wants to speak it clearly. He says he wants to declare the mystery. And when Paul says mystery of Christ, he's not saying it's so mysterious we can't understand it. He's saying it's a mystery solved. The mystery is that God has sent Jesus into the world. The mystery is that God is calling all people from all people groups to come to the Messiah, to enter into the family of God. And we've been given this task to, tear, to tell this mystery solved to the world. Open doors all around us. Will we walk through them? If we do, Paul is not just concerned with the action of proclamation. He's concerned with the attitude with which we do it, and he's concerned with this application. And it is our last application from the text today, and it is this. Let gratitude and peace define your speech and your very life. Look with me at verse 5. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time, let your speech always be gracious and seasoned with salt so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul is talking about defining attributes of a Christian. Where when you, when you see our hearts and, and the way that we display our hearts to the world through our actions, there are traits that should define us. When people think of us, those should be the traits that, that pop into their brain as they're thinking about the type of people we are. Not perfect people, but definitely a people who should have, if we've come to know him and walk with him, a Christ-like attitude. You know, when we're thinking about these qualities, these defining characteristics, I think it's helpful to have some comparison. Think about the 50 states that we have as a nation. We are the United States, but each state has a little bit of a personality, has some defining traits that would only be true of that state. So I want to show you some pictures, and I want to see if you can connect it with which state. Which state pops in your mind to see this as a defining trait? For instance, when you see this, which state do you think of? Kentucky. That's Kentucky Fried Chicken. I told you I'm from Corbin, Kentucky. You know what our claim to fame is? Colonel Sanders is from Corbin, Kentucky. We had the very first KFC ever. If you were to go to Corbin, Kentucky today and you were to drive downtown, there would be a park. And you know what's in that park? A statue of Colonel Sanders. That's our claim to fame. 
All right? What if I showed you this? What if, what if you saw this gateway to Disney World? What state is that? California would be Disneyland, but Disney World would be Florida. And you know what? I'd go to either of those if you invited me. But when we're thinking of, of Disney World, we're thinking of Florida. When we're thinking of Disneyland, we're thinking of California. Those are defining traits. Okay, what if I showed you this picture? Obviously, what is this? New York City, a city of New York State. And when you think of New York State and New York City, you think of the Big Apple. In other words, these are defining traits. It's hard to even think of these states without connecting them to these defining aspects. You know, as Paul continued with Colossians 4, 5 through 6, his focus is not just on what we proclaim. Paul's focus is on the attitude with which we proclaim it. That we should have some defining traits as Christians, traits that people think about. And those traits should be that when people think of us, that we're gracious and we're kind and we're patient and we're empathetic and we're peaceful and we're seasoned with salt. What does he say once again in verse 5? Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Mark 9.50 says it like this. Jesus said, salt is good, but if it loses its saltiness, how can you make it salty again? Have salt among yourselves and be at peace with each other. You see, a key component that your speech and your very life are seasoned with the metaphorical salt of this verse is this, that when people think of you and they see you, not, not circumstance, but on the foundation of Christ, they see peace. Not just a little peace. Not just kindness every now and then. But that you have so much peace. You are so kind that those characteristics literally define you. That people can't even picture you without thinking of the peace and kindness and speech that is seasoned with salt. Now be real right now. Ask yourself this. When people think of characteristics that define you, what do they think of? When they think of you, would they think patterns of anger, frustration, rage, hostility with others, just constant negativity, constant grumbling, constant complaining? Would they say these things define you? Or when people think of you and what defines you, do they think you are not perfect, but you're calm? You admittedly are flawed, but you're loving. You're kind. You have a peace that circumstance cannot dictate. Is that what people would say truly defines you? Because Paul says that is what should define our speech. That is what should define our very lives. 
because it's not good enough that we proclaim the good news. Though we absolutely must do that. But we speak the right message with the right attitude. That's what Paul's getting at. A godly attitude. That we come and we sit at the feet of Jesus. And we get to know him. And we constantly just can't believe it that we who were his enemies... We who were sinners, he came to us, and though we had nothing to offer him in our fallen state, he redeemed us, and we just become thankful for that, and we become grateful for that, and we just think every day, I don't deserve it, and here I am, God loves me. And that just starts to transform us. And there's no garbage the enemy can throw in our life that changes that truth that God, when we were still sinners, sent Christ to die for us. And it changes our attitude, and it changes the peace and the presence of God in our lives. And it's being changed by Jesus and armed with that, that we go to this world and we proclaim the good news with a godly attitude. The good news that we are sinners who cannot save ourselves. We are in trouble. How's that good news? The good news is that God didn't just stand outside and let us embrace this fate of turning against him. No, he came to us and and he sent Jesus for us. He sent Jesus Christ into this world. And though we were imperfect, Christ was perfect and Christ died as our substitute. Jesus took the punishment that we all deserve. And now this one who took our punishment has died. He has risen again. And if you will put your faith in him, If you will admit you are a sinner and believe in this one who died and came back to life, and if you will call upon him to be your Lord and Savior, then you can begin a relationship with him now that starts in this life and continues for eternity. For eternity, you get to think of this one, the creator of the cosmos, who loved you so much that he did not hold back his son. And you get to think about how grateful you are to be in his family. And you get your whole life wrapped up in what he's doing to exalt Jesus. And you go and you proclaim Christ. And you proclaim the gospel. And you do so with a godly attitude. Because at your core, what defines you is thankfulness. May it be true of us all. Let's pray. Father God, may we be a thankful people. Whenever the enemy came to Adam and Eve to make them doubt your love and does the same to us, whenever the enemy tries to make us doubt everything that you are for us, would we just think of the cross? And would we think that you did not spare your own son, you will hold back nothing for us? Would we think of your love and your kindness? And would that cultivate within our hearts gratitude? And would that gratitude be our motivation to go to this world that needs you? Would that gratitude be the motivation to discern in our lives that we all, every single one of us who've come to Christ, we have open doors right now to proclaim you. And would you give us the strength and the power and the courage to go through those open doors? Because because we don't have that within ourselves. 
we know we've been given the power of Christ. And so equipped with the power and strength of the Son of God, for your glory, may it be true of us that we go through these open doors. And Jesus, it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Let us stand. We will close singing the praises of the Lord. And if you need to come at this time as we lift him up, you come. <laughs>